Well, today in our series on the book of Revelation, we started chapter one. We're working our way through to the end of the book. That's our, our normal custom is to kind of work verse by verse through the books of the Bible. This is kind of our crossing the Rubicon moment in the book of Revelation. Because once you enter into Revelation 6, you've reached the point of no return. Okay, There's many sermon series on Revelation 1 to 5, but few venture into Revelation 6 and onward. Because Revelation 1 to 5, compared to what we're about to get into, looks very normal and very tame comparatively. Because if you thought there was some odd use of numbers, and there was some strange imagery and some disputable verses in chapters 1 to 5, you ain't seen nothing yet, okay? We're, we're in for a treat over the next uh, coming months and, and who knows how long. Well, as we begin to walk into the weirdness and complexity and strangeness and controversy of Revelation 6 and onward, I want you to keep two things in mind as we come to the scriptures. Keep in mind always how we should approach every passage of scripture. Listen to Isaiah 66 too. This is the one to whom I will look, declares the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We must approach every passage of scripture, even Revelation 6 and onward, with a prayerful posture of humility that says, make me to know your ways. Lead me in your truth. Make me to know your paths. In addition to that, always keep in mind how we should view every passage of Scripture. Not just how we should approach them, but how we should view every passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, including Revelation 6, is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So our conviction here is that these are the two things we need to approach any passage of scripture, no matter how strange, how controversial it is, and that's how we want to approach Revelation 6. God has put these chapters in here for our spiritual prophet, and we want to try get it out of this passage. God does not waste words. He has not asked us to be editors or to skip over certain things. He calls us to be humble hearers and diligent doers of his word, of the whole counsel of his word. That's why we're preaching through this section of the Bible. So with that, the ships have been burned. There's no turning back. We are going forward into Revelation 6. So hear now the inspired, profitable word of the Lord from Revelation 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider was named death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine 
and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need the gift of your spirit to illumine our minds so that we can understand. Lord, we need to be guided by your spirit so that we can cut through the controversy and the confusion and understand how your word is for our training in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. So Lord, guide us into your word this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are humble before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Ashley and I first found out that she was pregnant with our our first child, someone gave us a copy of that famous book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And this book advertises itself as the book that answers every possible question a first-time parent could have about the whole pregnancy and birth process. And if you've ever seen this book before, you know it's a very big, exhaustive book, 656 pages to be exact. Now, I was in graduate school at the time reading very big, thick, exhaustive books, and so I had to be very selective with what I had time to read. And so I had a classmate of mine. He already had two kids. He was familiar with the book, and so I went to him and I said, tell me what section is a must-read. Just just give me the one thing that you found most helpful in the book so I I know what I need to know, so I can be of of somewhat of help to my wife. It's a hard process for me, the birthing process, so I want to be helpful (laughs) to her. Surprisingly, he answered, the most helpful section hands down is where they contrast what you expect your child is going to look like right when they're born versus what they actually look like right when they're born. Now, if you've ever seen it, it's really just images, okay? And I don't, 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 don't go look it up, okay? But just, just be surprised. But one image is what you expect. And it looks like there's this beautiful child, just wonderful features, shaped well, looks like you know, he came out of just this oasis bath. And then next to it is a child that looks maybe half human, half cone head, that is you know, just covered. It looks like he came out from the secret of the ooze or something. And he said, this is what your child is going to look like when they're born. Not this, okay? And I am forever grateful to my friend for showing me that section because my expectations were way off. Suffice it to say, the Lord has blessed me with beautiful children, but they did not start out that way at all, Okay? So for those of you who know, you know. For those of you who don't know, you'll know, okay? (laughs) My expectations were not in line with reality, and I needed someone to come and recalibrate them so that they lined up with what it was really going to be like. Now, the reason I bring that up, as humorous as it is, is because this new section we're entering into in Revelation, starting with Revelation 6 onward, with seals and trumpets and bowls, is serving a similar recalibrating uh, function. We all have expectations, certain expectations, for how we think life is going to go for us and, and for you know, life generally. And our, our expectation, or at least our hope, is that it's going to go relatively smooth for us, that we're going to be relatively comfortable along the ride of life. The economy might have some ups and downs, but you know, it's always going to stabilize in the end. Our country may have some tense moments, but it'll always get smoothed out eventually. Sure, there's going to be more public health threats, but you know we'll find some treatment quickly, some way to deal with it. We'll, we'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Just keep calm and carry on is kind of the mantra. Well, Revelation 6 is written to recalibrate our expectations so that they are more aligned with reality. And the reality is 
that our present experience of comfort and prosperity and religious freedom is a grand exception, not the norm of life in history. If we were to zoom out from our present moment and experience, this is why it's so important to know history, we would see that in many ways, what we are experiencing now is a exception historically and geographically. It is a grand exception historically and geographically. The normal pattern for life in a fallen, sin-cursed world, one that is in rebellion against God and therefore under the judgment of God, is often calamity and hardship and strife and distress and disaster. And the list could go on and on and on. And it's a mistake to take our present unique moment and to take it as the standard and the norm for all of life everywhere at all times. With each seal that is open in Revelation 6, we are given a vivid symbolic picture of the types of calamities that we should expect to often mark the time between Christ's first and second coming. These things are not happening at all times in all places, but they are often happening in places throughout culture and history and life. So as we look at this chapter, here's what I want us to learn and take away from it. As believers, we are to expect and remain steadfast in the midst of calamities because they are governed by the sovereign purposes of the lamb who was slain for us. As believers, we are to expect and remain steadfast in the midst of calamities for one primary reason, because they are governed by the sovereign purposes of the lamb who was slain for us. Now, before I unpack that statement and how it unfolds in this section of our chapter, we need to address a very important and controversial question right out at the front, which is when, the timing question. When is this stuff going to take place? What is the timing of Revelation 6, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls? Because much of this, the controversy of Revelation, kind of revolves around the the question the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 24. Lord, when will these things be? He was, t- he was talking about the, the end of the age, and they asked that question that we often ask, when will these things be? Well, there's a couple views, as you can imagine. I'm going to briefly kind of go over some of them and then tell you the right one, okay? <laughs> some hold to a chronological view of Revelation, meaning that as each seal is opened, as each trumpet is blasted, as each bowl is poured out, they see that as describing in chronological sequence the events of history as they unfold. So one seal represents the second century, one seal represents the fourth century, and on and on. They see it kind of neatly chronologically unfolding in church history. And everyone's trying to find in this view, okay, what period of history are we in? Are we like the the fifth and a half bowl, the fifth and three quarters? Where where are we in this? I think that view has some truth to it in that it's clear in the book of Revelation that God's purposes in history are moving toward a climactic conclusion. That as you come to the end of Revelation, what you are seeing is how God is bringing all things to their dramatic end. When Christ returns, his kingdom comes and he establishes his eternal reign on a new heavens and new earth. But in my estimation, the chronological view tries to too neatly separate out things that clearly happen simultaneously. So if you look at the four seals that are first open in Revelation. It describes things like conquest and war and civil unrest and economic hardship and disaster and death. And it's clear in history and in scripture that these things often often happen simultaneously. They, They are not neatly separated out chronologically over history. Well, some hold to what I'm calling the concentrated view in which they see that the events of Revelation 6 and onward 
as uniquely describing events that are concentrated in a specific period of time and that time only. So you've heard it described as the Great Tribulation. So it's that that seven-year period that people believe that all these events are concentrated into just before the return of Christ. And that what we're reading from Revelation 6 onward only relates to this specific period of time and and otherwise it's, it's not very relevant. Well, I think what this view gets partly right, doesn't get much right in my opinion, what it gets partly right is that the New Testament seems to set the expectation that prior to the return of Christ, things are not going to get better, but worse. We're not, we're not under any utopian delusions when you read the New Testament, okay? Nor do I think it's just going to be some dystopian nightmare where, you know, if you watch one of, you know, one of those movies, I, I, you know, I Am Legend or something like that, that that's how you should expect. You need to, you know, be you know, harboring your ammo and things like that. But things are not going to get better. According to the New Testament, they're going to get worse. Rebellion doesn't kind of just have this, you know, soft edge to it, that where it just, you know, just kind of gets to a point. It's going to continue. Yet what this view misses is that the New Testament authors, like Paul and Jesus, when he speaks about the end times, they use the word tribulation to speak not just to a narrow, specific seven-year period of time, but the whole period of time between Christ's first and second coming. John even describes to his audience in Revelation two and three that what they are experiencing now is tribulation. That tribulation is something that we should expect as believers as a general pattern of life in this fallen world between Christ's first and second coming. And when John's original audience read Revelation 6 for the first time, when they understood the seals that were being opened and what they were describing, they knew exactly the types of things that those things were referring to. They lived under Rome and the thumb of it and the oppression that came from it. They knew the kinds of calamities that John wrote about probably better than you or I do. But there's a third view. I'm going to call this the cyclical view. This is is the view that I think is most accurate. And it sees the events of Revelation 6 and 11 and 12 and 14 and onward as describing cycles of patterns of tribulation and trial that are going to be recurring throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming, all leading to a climactic conclusion when Christ returns. So I don't think these are describing chronologically how things unfold. I don't think they're just concentrated in one period of time. I think when Christ ascended, the last days began, and between that time and when Christ returns, what John is describing is this is how life is going to go as we await the return of the king. That this is going to be a world marked by hardship and distress because we're waiting for the Prince of Peace to return and peace will not come until he returns to establish his kingdom of peace in which it will never be interrupted, never be disturbed. That's what we're waiting for. And so we should expect things like what is described in Revelation to be reoccurring throughout those two time markers. So when John, for example, uses the imagery in verse four, at the end of verse four, you see it with the seal there, that a great sword was given to one of the horses. What does a great sword represent? It describes things like war and civil unrest. I don't think we're meant to ask the question, you know, which specific war is he talking about? You know, is this the battle of Masada in 70 AD in Jerusalem? You know, is this, is this the war between the Capulets and the Montagues? Is this, is this World War III? You know, and when is Putin gonna start it? That's, that's not the question we should be asking. Instead, we're to understand that things represented by the great sword, war, conflict, civil unrest, they are going to be reoccurring 
until the Prince of Peace returns because he is going to bring about the war that ends all wars. When he comes with the sword in his mouth and by the breath of his mouth, he subdues and slays all his and our enemies. That's what it's meant to remind us of, that we are to be steadfast in the midst of these trials because they're going to be recurring and we are to say, come Lord Jesus in the midst of them. So when will these things be? They have and will continue to be reoccurring throughout history until the king comes to establish fully, finally, and forever his eternal kingdom. But until then, their message to us is this. We are to expect calamities and remain steadfast in them because they are governed by the sovereign purposes of the lamb who was slain for us. So what I want to do now with the rest of our time is just look at the first four seals in verses one to eight and see one of those purposes that the lamb intends for these calamities. The the lamb sovereignly purposes calamities to grab the attention of a deaf and dying world. That the lamb sovereignly uses calamities to grab the attention of a deaf and dying world. And what we just saw in Revelation 5 is we were introduced to the scroll, the scroll that represents God's title deed to history. It is the unfolding of his plan for the conclusion of his kingdom, for the wrapping up of the drama of history, for his purposes. And John said, there was no one worthy to open. He starts weeping in heaven because he cannot find someone who's worthy to unfold the purposes of God so that his kingdom would come. And then the lamb and the lion, the one who is both perfectly in one, takes the scroll because he is worthy. For he was slain and by, by his blood he ransomed people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Now John sees the lamb begin to break each seal one by one. The first four seals are all represented by horses of various colors and characteristics. And the reason for horse is because it was the symbol of conquest, the symbol of an an army going forth. So the first seal in verses one and two unleashes the white horse of conquest, white for the symbol of, of victory, the flag of victory. And this seal represents a calamity that comes in the wake of power hungry, ambitious nations and leaders like Rome and their emperors, Nero, Vespasian, Domitian, or Stalin in the Soviet Union, or Pol Pot in Cambodia, or Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And sadly, it probably represents more to come if the Lord tarries. Well, then the second seal, verses three and four, it unleashes the bright red horse of conflict. So red symbolizing the bloodshed, the deadliness that is often left in the wake of war and unrest and conflict. And this is an interesting one because Many people thought prior to 1914 that mankind had reached this place of progress where he had established peace, that mankind was getting along, they had advanced enough to where war was now behind us, no longer in front of us. And then what happened? 1914 comes, World War I starts, and that kicked off, in one sense, the next hundred years, which was the bloodiest, deadliest century on record more than all the other previous centuries combined. And so it's one of those things that is still occurring. Well, then the third seal at verses five and six unleashes the black horse of economic hardship. So the image here, the black image here is imagine a field that's meant to be filled with grain and harvest and full and you see it just singe because fire has come and has taken all the crops away. And it's economic hardship represented by just a black singed field that was meant to produce a crop. Well, look at verse six with me and notice what is stated in this seal. 
said, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, but do not, ha- do not harm the oil and the wine. Well, what is the statement getting at? The statement is getting at a quart of wheat was considered enough food for one person for one day. So that, that's kind of the, the measurement that you would meet out to give one person their, their food for the day. A denarius was the average daily wage for one person. So you have the average daily wage for one person, which is just enough to buy the amount of food you needed for one person for one day. So a quart of wheat at this time used to cost about one eightieth of a denarius. Now it costs one denarius. This is like 800%, or I'm not good at math, but 800% inflation for the most basic daily bread, your wheat. And so what this is showing in this scenario is that the most basic daily food has become so expensive, so scarce, that it would cost everything you earn in one day just to buy that one meal so that you could do the same thing the next day, to earn just enough money to buy just enough food for one person. So this is inflation and scarcity on levels that we have never thought possible. But sadly, it has been and probably will be experienced by many more people throughout history if the Lord tarries. Well, then you have the fourth seal in verses seven and eight. And this unleashes the pale horse of death. And the, the, the color that is used or described here is that, that, that picture of someone who you, you see the life going out of them. They're, they're, they're dealing with some disease, some ailment, and you can, you can see that the color is going out from their skin. And in one sense, this horse summarizes all the outcomes and effects of the previous three horses, that it adds death toll with starvation and war and conquest. But then it adds even more because it's things like pestilence or disease. But think of the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages in Europe, they had the Black Death, the bubonic plague. And estimations, as far as we can tell, 75 to 200 million people died as a result. So in, in one sense, the reason I bring that up is to show these are patterns that have recurred throughout history. But sometimes what we often do is we look at a text like this and say, and then we look at a newspaper and think, okay, which one is lining up with which thing today? And we, we, you know, we go through something like COVID and we think this has got to be the fourth seal. It's never, been, it's never ever been worse than this ever. And yet you need to know history to understand that one of our sins is exaggerating the novelty of our own situation. We think, oh, it's never been worse. It's, it's been terrible. I went to Aldi the other day and they didn't have the specific meat I wanted. And I thought, you know, supply chain issues are back. They're after us. You know, what's going on? They had other meat. I just didn't want that meat, okay? And so once it's, it's proper to understand and not over-exaggerate our experience as having affluence and prosperity, but also when it doesn't go well, when our comfort is, is impinged on a little bit to not think this, this must be the fourth seal. This is it. This is, wh- this is where it's coming. We need to see history in its fullness to understand these are cycles and patterns that have been recurring throughout history in various forms. So taken together... These four horses of the apocalypse, as they're often referred to, are in a sense designed to calibrate our expectations to what life in a fallen, sin-cursed, rebellious world is going to be like. Conquest, conflict, civil unrest, economic turmoil, the inescapable reality of death are going to be recurring reminders that all is not as it should be that this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
They're recurring and in many ways unignorable reminders of the chaos and consequences of what happens when humanity rebels against the God of life. This is what ensues. And yet there's one thing I want to show you that takes place recurring throughout these in the midst of them. Look with me at verse 2 of these seals. Verse 2, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Then jump over to verse 4. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted, or some of your translations might say, was granted to take peace from the earth. Then jump down to verse eight. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. What this is showing in one sense is, especially for for John's audience, he's he's writing to people who are experiencing these really in, in three dimensional realities out in front of them in their circumstances. And they're asking the question, is Christ really in charge? Is his kingdom really going to come? What is going on and and where is the Lord? And what this is showing to them is that you have to live by faith and not by sight. We have to understand that even in the midst of chaos and these calamities, the lamb is on his throne ruling and overruling. He did not misspeak when he said, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me and I will be with you to the end of the age. And so for the believers that John was writing to, and even for us at times, we can look at our circumstances. We can see the calamities that are swirling around us, and I don't, I don't want to undermine them in any way. And, and when they are hard, and when they are very difficult for us to go through, we begin to wonder, is God really in charge? Or you might ask the question, I know I've been told God is in charge. And so if he is in charge, how could this be? How could he let this happen? And what John is showing the believers is you need to understand and trust that you may not know all the whys, all the hows, but the lamb is still in charge even in the midst of all these calamities. They do not have their own authority. He is not sitting there running around anxious in heaven, making phone calls and wondering who's doing what. He's not looking for plan B. He is in charge working out his purposes. Now, it's sometimes a struggle to grasp how how that works, how this reality can exist and how this theological truth can be true. How how do these two things fit together? And whenever I struggle with those questions, I find it most helpful to retrace the steps of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And here's what I mean by that. When Judas betrayed Jesus, it did not look like Jesus was in charge at all. When the Roman soldiers came and arrested Jesus and took him away like a common prisoner, it did not look like Jesus was the one in control. When Herod and Pilate put Jesus on trial and unjustly condemned him and sentenced him to be crucified to assuage the crowds who were yelling crucify him, it did not look like Jesus was the one who had the most authority in that moment. And then when Jesus hung on a cross in weakness and agony, and shame, and mockery, it did not look like he was living up to the name placed above him on that cross, the king of the Jews. He did not look like a conquering king in that moment. But then what happened? Sunday comes. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes are there. The angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? 
And when Jesus appeared to his disciples and he showed them the wounds in his hands and yet his living, glorified self, they understood to a degree in that moment, even when Judas was betraying, even when the soldiers were arresting, even when Pilate and Herod were condemning and the crowds were mocking, even when death ensued, the Father and the Son were perfectly, flawlessly working out their sovereign, saving purposes to bring about the salvation of many. And so what is the point of bringing that up? If the Lamb was in control in the midst of those chaotic, unseemingly circumstances, working out his sovereign purposes, then surely we should be able to view all chaotic circumstances with the eye of faith that says, I cannot fully understand how or why, Lord, but I know that The lamb who was slain for me is in charge. Here I stand. I can go nowhere else. God's sovereignty is the only place we can safely rest our heads when we need comfort. Because where else do we have to go other than knowing that the lamb is in charge? And so I want the theology of that final verse of this is my father's world to sink into your spiritual bloodstream. This is my father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. The lamb who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. That is what those verbs are giving us a picture of. That even in the midst of chaos, the lamb is still sovereign, working out his purposes. But that brings us to another question. What are some of those purposes that he's working out even in the midst of these difficult calamities? When his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis made this famous statement, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, what Lewis is getting at is, When things go nice and pleasant, it's easy to overlook and ignore. Beautiful, gorgeous day yesterday, and you're busy in your house cleaning, getting things ready, doing things, and you totally overlook the fact that the sun was shining, the air was crisp and cool, you could have marshmallows and a fire, but you you missed it all. It's easy to ignore pleasure. But pain does not allow you that privilege at times, or that lack of privilege. So imagine, it's 2 a.m., you get up, you gotta go to the bathroom, and you're, you're walking around the corner of your bed, and boom, the big toe nails the big corner, okay? I don't care how tired you are, how groggy you are, you are awake and alert, and you are, you're speaking French that you didn't know you could speak before, and it's pain insists upon being attended to. That toe will not let you go knowing that you've you got to walk better. Okay? You've got to learn how to walk better. That's what Lewis is getting at. Pain insists upon being attended to. God uses pain as his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So you could substitute the word calamity for pain. Calamities are God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Through the megaphone of calamities, God is shouting to the world that the gods of this age cannot save you. The idols of this age are futile. Each of the horses and the calamities they represent are directed in one way or another at dismantling and undermining something that mankind is prone to make an idol out of. An idol is anything you look to other than God for safety, security, self-fulfillment, and satisfaction. And we fashion many of them, even if they're invisible. The third seal 
which releases the black horse of economic turmoil, is aimed at the God of money and affluence, the God of mammon. You cannot worship both God and money. So when markets crash and inflation soars and supply chains buckle and unemployment rises, the insufficiency and incompetence of the God of money is more and more exposed for what it is. It seemed like a mighty fortress and now it looks like a house of cards. That's what God is doing in this. The fourth seal, which releases the pale horse of the plague of death, is aimed at what I think is one of the biggest idols in our culture at this time, the idol of health and safety. Just stay safe, be safe, stay safe, get healthy, whatever it is. We we think that the fountain of youth is just something of myth and legend. That, you know, it's just something that, you know, we went to St. Augustine and visited, and you can go and pay money to look at this fountain of youth. I tried it. It didn't help me. I didn't look any better after drinking from it. But in many ways, we're still looking for it. We've just renamed it other things. You know, medical advancement, scientific research, you, you, you name it. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but we almost like fill them with religious significance and meaning. And yet, with all the advances we've made in science and medicine and health, we are prone to forget that we are always finite, we are always fragile, and more than that, we are fallen creatures, and the wages of sin is always death. And we almost become tricked by the mirage of invincibility. We think we've we've found the elixir of life, the fountain of youth, and yet nothing humbles the pride of man more than the ever-present reminder in one form or another, as difficult as it is, that the wages of sin is always death, that mankind has rebelled against God, and as a result, he dies physically and he will die spiritually. So one sense, these seals are asking us, how do you fill in the next line of that hymn? My hope is built on nothing less. What comes next? My hope is built on nothing less than money, health, and happiness. That's how many people would sing it. And yet in the midst of difficult circumstances, we need to ask this question, is the Lord using this trial to expose an idol that I'm clinging to and need to let go of so that I can cling to him? Is the Lord using this to help me wrench my hands free of something that I've been gripping to so closely and tightly that it's actually killing it and me and I need to cling to him? We need to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Another message that God shouts to the megaphone of calamity is that here we have no lasting city. So seek the city which is to come, whose designer and builder is God. Or another way to put it, calamities help us become alert to the fact that we live not for the here and now, but we live in light of eternity. That is how Christians live. Calamities interrupt our comfort. They disrupt our attempts to try and and gather up all the pleasure that life can offer to make our home permanently here. They have a way of reminding us that this world, as good as it can be at times, and yet as difficult as it is, is not my home. It cannot quench and satisfy the thirst of my soul, which is longing for another person and another world. <laughs> Calamities also have a way of showing us how short-sighted we can be. YOLO, FOMO, whatever the kids are saying these days, we are obsessed with and distracted by the here and now. We need to gather up as much joy as we can and because that, this is all you get. And yet we give so little thought to eternity. So calamities help us ask ourselves a very necessary question. Where am I storing my treasure? Where is my primary place of residence and citizenship? Is it here or is it in heaven? Well, finally, 
God is shouting through the megaphone of calamities that the only safe refuge in this world is in Christ. In other words, calamities are designed to teach us to sing the first line of the song of response that we're going to sing in a moment. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The imagery of that line is of someone caught in the middle of a dangerous and tumultuous storm. And they're traveling on a journey and they're, they're looking for some sort of shelter and safety in the midst of the storm to get out of it. And then suddenly they find an opening in the cleft of a rock and they run and hide into it and it shelters them from all the danger and disaster of the storm that rages around them. It doesn't stop the storm necessarily, but they have a, a refuge, a place to hide that keeps them safe and secure. What the hymn is telling us is Christ is that rock of ages. He is the one cleft for us that can give us the only Shakir shelter that promises us to sustain us and uphold us in the chaotic calamities of life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus, somehow by coming to Jesus, that he uses a magic eraser to remove all the calamities of life. That's not how it works. In this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, take heart, I've overcome this world. That Paul says in Romans 8, that what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can famine or nakedness or death or sword or plague? or He names everything that you could think of that would come as a calamity that, that might ruin your faith. And he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Meaning that Christ gives us the grace we need, just as he did to go through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side because the Lord is our shepherd and he is sustaining us through them. So in this world, there will be conflict and strife and unrest. But if anyone is in Christ, they have an unshakable, untouchable peace with God. In this world, there will be economic and physical hardship. But if anyone is in Christ, they have life and riches that not a single trouble in this world can touch or take away. So have you hidden yourself in the rock of ages by faith? Have you fled to him? Have you recognized the emptiness of the idols of this age? Have you recognized the futility of living only for the here and now and seen that fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are only found in Christ? Whatever calamities come, our confidence needs to be this. The lamb who was slain for us holds the scroll to history in that hand that was pierced for us. And he works out all his sovereign purposes for our good and his glory. Let's pray.